Hey, it's Andy Bush here. Right, this is the full and unedited chat uh, between myself and Professor David Wilson, obviously dealing with some pretty serious themes like uh, murders and death and violence and so on, which is part of the subject matter. Uh, if it's something that is going to freak you out a little bit or, you know, you're a little bit squeamish, uh, maybe want to leave this one alone, possibly, but we just wanted to warn you ahead of the chat. If you're sticking with us, enjoy. Well, it's, it's an honour to welcome to the show uh, one of the UK's leading criminologists, is the brilliant Professor David Wilson. Welcome. Well, that's so kind for a nice uh, um, for a nice introduction you've given to me. Well, I've enjoyed watching you on TV loads of times through a lot of stuff that I'm really interested in. You're about to embark on this amazing um, tour, and it's a, it's a tour in terms of theatres and so on, unlike anything I've ever heard of before. My life with murderers. So you're going up and down the United Kingdom and and talking about your vast experience in this field. How do you feel on the on the kind of eve of this thing getting going? Well, completely apprehensive. I think it's some, one of the most exposing things I've done with my career because quite clearly, um, I know you're really fascinated by crime and true crime, yep. but I have to fill theatres yep. and say nobody comes. I'm, I'm going to be completely um, bereft when I discover that, they're, oh, we're taking away that date because nobody's coming and we're taking away that date because nobody's coming. Yep. Then I'll just feel as if I've been completely stupid for embarking on this. No, no, no. I, you know, I think it's, we know that it's it's an area, for good or for bad, that people have a huge kind of fascination with. So, And, and will it be a tour in terms of you... You, you, you'll take questions from the audience? or how, What will be the format of how this? How does it work? Yeah, I'm going to start by talking about... It. Well, it's my life with murderers. So I'm going to start by showing three small videos of me actually speaking with murderers. Wow, OK. And uh, then I'll use that as a framing device to talk about what do these interviews tell us about murder and murderers. And inevitably, um, I'll creep into talking about... Because one of the people that I'll be talking about is someone that I know you're fascinated by, which is Dennis Nielsen. And I had a kind of lifelong uh, connection to Nielsen because not only did I work with him when uh, he was in prison, but he would write to me. And so I had, um, you know, A4 files of Dennis Nielsen's correspondence, which I've just got rid of, thankfully. Because um, they kind of polluted my I study bet. at home, yeah, I bet. and I was desperate to get rid of them. Yeah. Um, but I'll talk a lot about Dennis Nielsen and about serial murder, and also, you know, the kind of the other types of murders as well. The kind of five minutes of madness type of murder. I've yeah. certainly worked with a lot of people who, um, you know, lost it. And um, they did something that was the worst thing they could possibly do. And then they spent the rest of their life regretting what they had done. So I'll talk about that that kind of murder as well. Yeah, and, and in terms, you just mentioned just before we got going there that you, you're you still involved with actively training the police. Well, in terms of your day-to-day job, what, what is your involvement in this kind of field? What do you do? So my day-to-day job would be professor. I'm emeritus professor of criminology. So my, my real day job is working with students. You know, criminology is a growth course. It's probably one of the most popular undergraduate courses in uh, in Britain at the moment. And yep. so, for example, when I first started back in university in 1997, we had probably 40 undergraduate students. This year, or last September, at the beginning of the last academic year, 
I was lecturing to 400 oh, undergraduate wow. students in their first year. So it's, you know, a very, very popular course. So that's my day job. Yep. But then periodically I will be asked to um, train, uh, offer training uh, to various police forces or indeed to work on um, live cases. But that, that that's very much, um, uh, you know, kind of unexpected, really. Okay. My, my work is really to be an academic... Uh, to write, to research, and to teach. And am I right in saying that you were a prison governor? I, I was a prison governor. So, so to criminologists, it's quite a trajectory. What, 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 what was the change? Is that, is that as much of a, ch- a turnaround as, as we would think it is on the surface? Well, I think the first change was I, I was probably going to become an academic. Right. I was doing my um, doctorate at Cambridge, but I played rugby. And on one particular match, I was a winger, I was fast, Mm -hmm. uh, but if the forwards caught you, they would always try and duff up the winger. And um, and one particular match, um, I got duffed up, and when we both, the person duffing me up, when I got up off the ground, I punched him in the face and broke his nose. Oh, wow. And um, and of course we shook hands afterwards and had a pint in the in the bar, but it just so happened uh, the Cambridge Evening News that week reported on a young man who used no more violence than I had used and got sent to Borstal, and I wanted to know why my violence as a nice middle-class boy um, led to a drink at the bar with the person whose nose I'd broken and his violence, which was no worse than the violence that I had used, had inexorably led to prison. And so that's what changed my career because I would have become an academic. Whereas, in fact, that made me think, right, I want to know more about the law. I want to know more about crime and punishment. And so instead of becoming a junior academic, Mm -hmm. I joined the prison service as assistant governor at Wormwood Scrubs. So my very first job was working at Wormwood Scrubs. And, of course, people tried to make sense of me. They were like, you know, who's this doctor, Wilson, who's (laughs) suddenly become the assistant governor? And one of the first people I met in that context was a man who'd just been convicted of killing young men, and he was called Dennis Nielsen. Oh, wow, okay. Unbelievable. So a small kind of incident changed your entire trajectory of your life. Speaking of prisons and crime and punishment, do you think being in prison helps bad people towards... Uh, you know, being on the straight and narrow or, or, or makes them better? or No, you're, you're setting this up so you know full well the answer to that question is no, of course it doesn't. There's only... Uh, prison is an expensive way of making bad people worse. There's only right. one prison in the whole of the United Kingdom that can demonstrate any kind of treatment effect. If you go to that prison, you're less likely when you're released not to commit further offences. Okay. And that's the unique prison regime at HMP Grendon, which is the only prison in the whole of Europe that operates as a therapeutic community. And that's where I learned about violence from violent men. It was violent men who taught me about the circumstances in which they would use violence. So I didn't learn about the subject area from textbooks initially. I learned from listening to what they would say about the circumstances in which they would use violence and sadly take someone's life. Well, so, I mean, when you, when you talk about talking to people about this and, and 
you know, almost like sharing their experiences. I mean, you read a lot about detectives who end up having to having drinking problems down the line or can't uh, sleep because of what they've seen. Does it affect you, this dark subject matter? Does it give you sleepless nights at all? So you've got to be really careful about co- being able to compartmentalise. It's one of the, the big things that I talk to students about. You know, um, uh, you've got to be able to switch off. Yep. You've got to be able to be psychologically robust you know, I've been married for 33 years. Yeah. You know, I have a good family background. I have nice kids. My wife is very supportive. I can switch off because I don't want to bring the world that I'm sometimes exposed to back into my domestic life. Yeah. So you've got to be able to compartmentalize. I still do a lot of walking. I still love rugby. Um, you know, I'm a Northampton Saints fan. Yeah. Um, so you've got to have outside interests that allow you to really switch off from some of the darkness because in that darkness you must not stay you must always be guided by the fact that the vast majority of human beings don't deal with darkness they deal with light and they want to be helpful and so one of the most kind of iconic scenes that you would see in say something on netflix or in 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 films and so on is the is the detective or the the criminologist waiting there to have the murderer or the killer the the criminal brought into the room for the interview the the one-to-one interview um which people, bad people have you have you sat down and spent one-to-one time with? And have any of them kind of properly intimidated you? Or how has that been? I've been properly intimidated on a number of occasions. Um, I don't try to pretend I, I, I'm some kind of uh, royal marine or something. I have genuinely been frightened yep. um, by some of the men that I've sat next to. Um, the interesting thing is none of them were murderers. Okay, uh, Both were aggravated burglars. In other words, they had used violence in the commission of uh, the burglary they had committed. I also take very good care of setting up the room before I would go into a room um, or the prisoner would come into the room where I would be conducting an interview. How have you been setting up then? Well, you would you would construct a room very um, with some con- uh, consideration about okay. the fact that violence might be used against you. So, for example, I would sit closest to the door. Um, so, for example, I would sit on a slightly raised chair, whereas the person I was interviewing would be sitting on a much lower chair, so it would take him longer to get up. Uh, and come towards me. I wouldn't wear jewellery, for example, so that that could be used as a a weapon. I would make sure that if I was particularly concerned about who I was going to interview, that I would have a, a line of sight with a member of staff that could observe me. There would often be a buzzer underneath my desk that I could press if I was in particular trouble. But the worst was, uh, I think the worst time was when um, somebody that I knew um, didn't like me, to put it politely, um, came, wanted to see me, and I, I, of course, agreed to see him. And he was wearing um, um, sweatpants, baggy sweatpants, and um, he was fumbling within his pocket, and it was quite clear he'd been searched before he'd come into the room. Right. And so it was quite clear that he was searching. So this, you will have to edit this, Bush. You know, this is up to you. No problem. Um, I realised that he had a hole in his pocket, and he had secreted under his foreskin a razor blade, and he was able to reproduce the razor blade within the interview. Um, 
Now, that's pretty scary yeah. because you're dealing with a psychology, the psychology of an individual who thinks nothing about putting a razor blade under his foreskin yeah. and therefore what is he prepared to do yeah. to you in that situation? And so that was one of the circumstances in which I pressed the buzzer yes, and pretty quickly. got out of the room. <laughs> wow. I mean, any of these people, that are any of these guys ever remorseful of what they've done? No. no. None of them are remorseful, ever. <laughs> no, no. I love all these things whereby people always imagine that the serial killer is going to make a deathbed confession. Yeah. They're going to tell you where the bodies are and the other victims that they've killed. They never do that. That's a media... That's a media... They, n- they never feel bad about it. They're never remorseful at all. Uh, if we're talking about serial murderers, multiple murderers, no, they're never remorseful. Dennis Nielsen was never remorseful. Dennis Nielsen talked endlessly, but not about remorse. He would use the word remorse, but he didn't know what that meant. He didn't know what that felt like. I mean, we are dealing usually here with psychopathy, and so one of the defining features of psychopathy is an inability to walk in another person's shoes, a lack of empathy. So they might know the words to use, but they have no connection to the feeling that that word is describing. Okay. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, just to go back to the tour, My Life with Murderers, one thing that I found really interesting is, is the statement, the kind of mission statement for the tour, which is you want to persuade the audience that an interest in true crime is not just normal, but also necessary. Uh, and, and there's been a, you know, a huge interest from the public about um, true crime. And it's kind of transformed recently, maybe through, uh, you know, hits like Serial about uh, Adnan Saeed and the Netflix hits like Making a Murderer or Don't Mess With Cats, to use a different word for the phrase. But um, and, and you've seen the public take a bit more of a proactive interest in trying to solve things through internet web sleuths and so on. This has blown up, obviously, spectacularly with the fractured relationship between um, the police and the public in the sad case of Nicola Bully. Do you feel like the, the public interest in the want to get things solved has overstepped the mark a little bit now? No, no I don't. And I, I, I feel there's, at the moment, the zeitgeist is to be a bit sniffy about true crime, about the public's interest in true crime. Yeah. I, 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 think the, I, I think there's been a sniffiness about armchair detectives. You know, the police have always relied on the public yeah. to come forward with information. It just so happens that we now have this thing called social media yeah. that we have to deal with, and the police have to deal with that. So I, I don't think uh, that it's gone too far. I think that the, the idea of wanting to solve yourself, the yeah. Crime, which and you mentioned serial. You mentioned don't mess with cats, and there are others. There's Teacher's Pet from Australia as well, which was a, a, a podcast that um, basically got the man who had murdered someone convicted yeah. of that murder. Absolutely. Um, so I think. What we're seeing here is that the label true crime is now accommodating a wide variety of output, a wide variety of individual behaviours, and uh, sometimes there are extremes within that um, uh, within that label now. Yeah. And on the one level, you have true crime that really is just retelling the story of a particular crime with ever more gruesome detail. And on the other level, you've got the public actually saying, I think this is a miscarriage of justice. I think we could try and solve this particular case. So the, the label itself is trying to, to accommodate too much. But your your first point was about the mission statement. I keep saying I want to talk to the public about, say, serial murder. Yep. Because in this country, serial killers, over 90% of the time, 
only target five groups of people. Now, you don't need to enter the mind of a serial killer, another media trope, if you just concentrate on the victim groups, because serial killers in this country target overwhelmingly women. There's only one group of men that are targeted, and that's gay men. And of the four groups of women that are targeted, the two that are targeted most regularly by serial killers are sex workers and women over the age of 60. Right. Now, if you take that as a starting point, in terms of public policy, then you challenge homophobia. You have a grown-up debate about how we police sex work in this country. Yep. And above all, we start to give older people back their voice, back their agency, back in terms of questioning why so many older people might have fallen victim to somebody like our most prolific serial killer, who of course was... Dr. Harold Shipman. No, absolutely, absolutely. And one other common factor in my, um, you know, I've done a lot of reading about this thing, as you said, it's, it, it is a subject that fascinates me. And it's interesting you should say that because I felt like I've I've had to almost step back away from saying that it's a subject that fascinates me because of what's don't happened recently. Do you know what I mean? I feel like I I've been ashamed. I don't think you should be ashamed of that. I mean, what's interesting, of course, about the Nicola Bully case is remember, someone disappears in the United Kingdom Every 90 seconds, right. 170,000 people disappear in the United Kingdom every single year. Wow. And so it's a question of most of those people, thankfully, are found or they make themselves known yep. within 48 hours. So there's a very small number of people who will be missing for much longer. Now, if you start thinking about it in that way, why does the public become more interested in Nicola Bully than the other people who go missing for a similar length of time yeah. that didn't make the news? And that's got something to do, I think, with ideal victims. You know, that we tell the story of murder or we tell the story of missing people through what criminologists would call ideal victims. Hmm. And who's an ideal victim? Somebody who's white, somebody who's middle class, somebody who comes from a professional background, somebody who lives in a picture postcard um, village where yep. crime is almost non-existent. A black working class man in inner city London who goes missing is not going to attract half any of the news uh, that Nicola Bully, the tragic case of Nicola Bully attracted. No, that's that's absolutely spot on. Really, really good point. I, I, I totally agree. And, um, uh, you know, one, one other thing I was just going to say about um, in terms of reading about these styles of things with like uh, other other famous cases like the Green River Killer or Ted Bundy or Fred West, Peter Tobin. Back in those days, there was, there was quite bad sharing of information between police, whether it was state to state or county to county, say um, the Yorkshire Ripper, for example. Do you, this is a weird question, but I, I wanted to ask you, do, do you think those, you know, those big, horrible, monster, huge number serial killers that we used to have in the past, do you think that is a thing that will never happen again just because of information technology, social media, ring doorbells, the, the sharing of information? That's a, no, it's a very good question. But I think, I think there's a, a yes and no, so forgive me, I'm going to give you a, no, no, a slightly absolutely. ambiguous answer. It's much more difficult because to get those huge numbers of victims without being detected because of the sharing of information between police forces. Uh, you know, Bundy was successful, as it were, because he crossed state boundary yeah. and, and, and law enforcement, um, county lines, state lines. Uh, 
Peter Tobin that you mentioned um, again crosses um, crosses you know moves from Bathgate in Scotland and ends up living in Margate in England. Yeah. Um, and of course, I was in his house in Margate in England, and uh, well, that's another matter. Yeah. Um, but um, <clears throat> so it, it is more difficult because of the sharing of information, because of the development of forensic science, because you know there's a much greater awareness of serial murder. But as I, I'm afraid, as I've written about and spoken about, <clears throat> there are two active serial killers in Britain at any given time. And between them, they will kill, on average, seven people per year. And we might not work out who those seven people are and who those two serial killers are for many years, uh, until many years in the future. Wow. And of course, the group... So here's the yes... Here, This is the no to the yes that I've just given to your question. If I were a serial killer, which I'm not, I would be targeting the homeless. And so many homeless people die in the United Kingdom every single year, and their deaths are attributed to natural causes. And of course, we know that many of the home homeless people may have mental health problems, may have addiction problems, um, and of course, they're sleeping rough sometimes. And therefore, again, therefore, their 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 life expectancy is going to be much lower than your and my life right. expectancy. But the numbers in are the numbers of people who are homeless who are dying in this country seems to me to be worthy of scrutiny in terms of why they are dying in the numbers that they're dying and i do worry that because what serial murder does is it allows us to look at vulnerabilities in our culture. Yep. I mean, we were talking about homophobia, misogyny. We're talking about um, uh, the problem of people who are older in our culture. These are vulnerabilities in our society. Hmm. And I think one of the biggest vulnerabilities at the moment are just the numbers of people who are having to sleep rough or who are homeless. And that's what serial killers target. Serial killers are very good at targeting those people who are vulnerable and will not be lost. Well, let's let, final question because it's fascinating. I could talk to you uh, for ages on this because it's such a fascinating uh, topic. Uh, I'll end with a question that you said at the beginning, a question that you thought I'd probably ask you, which I thought was very <laughs> enigmatic. Uh, I was going to ask you for definite whether people are born evil. Do you think people are born evil? No. Uh, I think that... I, I, I've met evil... And um, I think that it's always a combination of nature and nurture. So I do believe we're biological beings. I do believe we're hearts and minds. But the kind of genetic inheritance that creates those heart and minds can be sculpted, changed, altered, benefited, or indeed aggravated by how we are nurtured. Yeah. And so it's always going to be this messy combination of the two that impacts on that particular individual to create that individual for good or for ill. But I suppose the other question is, is there evil? And absolutely there is. Absolutely. But let's also remember that that evil is overwhelmed by light is yep. overwhelmed by goodness, is overwhelmed by humanity. And that's what I take away from my work, that there are far more many, there are far many more people who want to do good than ever want to do harm. Amazing. Well, listen, uh, Professor David Wilson, thank you so much. My Life with Murderers, 
I'm definitely going to come and see you because this is this is fascinating. And it's not just about, like you say, it's not just about uh, statistics, about murder or whatever. It kind of shines a light on our, our, us as a, society, uh, as a society as well, I think, as well. An interesting reflection. So you can come and see me from Salford on the 8th of April all the way through to Glasgow on uh, Cardiff on the 9th of May. So I'll be in various places in between, but uh, fingers crossed people are as fascinated by this subject as you are. Oh, they, they will be, I promise you. So check it out. Uh, Professor David Wilson, My Life with Murderers, go and see it and I will see you there. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me.